Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to thank you again for joining us today on the program. And uh, once again, I'm trusting that you're tuning in every week to consistently hear us uh, take this thing layer by layer and uh, unpack and unveil the book of Revelation. I, I trust it's making sense to you. I do deeply appreciate your cards and letters and your uh, uh, when you hit us on our public profile on uh, our um, uh, Facebook page and uh, you're sharing with us what you're hearing. I'm, we're just so encouraged that people have told us, we understand this, we get this. I'm really trying to take the fear out of this book of Revelation because I believe that, first of all, these catastrophes and judgments are not in our future. They're in our past. I, I, I want to talk about this particular segment. I want to look at several scriptures in the Word of God and put them in the context of what he's saying that uh, will help us to understand that much of what we think about the last days is really uh, we, we go to the Scripture with a, uh, a, a preconceived idea when we think we read a Scripture about the last days. And I want to say to you simply, too, as well, that, you know, the Scripture does not talk about, the Bible does not talk about the end of time. It talks about the appointed time of the end. And from the Old Testament all the way through, uh, the appointed time of the end was not the end of a global situation, but the end of a covenant. If we don't understand that, we will not understand the eschatology of grace. But when we understand that the last days and the end of the world, the word world, and we're going to look at this today in some of the scriptures, the word world is translated in King James as world, and it makes us think in terms of global. But it is the Greek word eon or age, and it literally is not talking about the end of a global situation. It is talking about the end of the age of the law and the end of the age of the Mosaic system, and it is talking about the end of the Jewish age. And so uh, we're going to talk about some of that. We're going to look at several scriptures, and we're going to put them in the context. Now, let, let, me, let me first of all take you uh, to the book of, let me take you to Hebrews. I think we'll go there first. Hebrews chapter number one. And if, you, if you're following along in your Bible, let's just go there. Hebrews chapter one, verse number one. This is King James. It says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. This is the apostle Paul. Hath, past tense. Hath, doesn't mean he's going to do that in the future. Hath in these last days, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, but whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The apostle Paul I believe it was the Apostle Paul. That, that's really not relevant. It was all penned by the Holy Spirit by inspiration. So whoever wrote this is nevertheless in the canon of the Scripture. But I believe it was the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is declaring God has past tense in these last days. So the Apostle Paul, writing to these Hebrews, believes he is standing in the last days. Now, uh, He's not the only apostle. I would think if the apostle Paul were the only apostle who thought this way, 
Uh, I think, well, he, was in, he spent a lot of time in Roman prisons. He was beaten a lot. He was stoned a lot. You know, it might have just knocked him senseless. But then, you know, the apostle Peter will stand up in Acts, the second chapter, and he will say this. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost had just been poured out, and, and people were talking in tongues in a cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon them. In the middle of this, Peter stands up under the unction of the Holy Ghost, and he said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men are going to dream dreams. The sun is going to be darkened. The moon is going to be turned into blood, before, and the stars will fall from the heavens. Uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. Now, let me say to you that the apostle Peter was calling his day. When the Holy Ghost was poured out, he said, this is not what's going to happen in 2,000 years after a 2,000 year gap or, uh, you know, one of these days out in the future. He, he stood up right then when God was pouring out the Holy Spirit and he said to them, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel that in the last days. So Peter calls his day the last days as well. I believe it's also in Isaiah, the 28th chapter, that the prophet Isaiah says, with stammering lips and another tongue, will I speak to this people, yet they will not hear. The, the, the gift of tongues in this particular um, season was not just uh, given so they could talk in tongues, but it was given for unbelieving apostate Jews. In other words, God was constantly trying to bring them back to an understanding of what the law and the prophets prophesied would occur during this period of time, that God would talk to them and say to them, even with another tongue and stammering lips, while well, I speak to this people, yet they will not hear me. And so when Peter stands up, he said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, Peter calls his day the last days. And you say, but Brother Howes, uh, the next part of it says, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall be turned into blood, and the stars will fall from heaven. And I got up this morning, and the sun was still up, and the moon was still there. And to that I would respond that you've got to have some kind of biblical literacy to understand some of these things. These are prophetic terms. When Joseph had a dream, he saw the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to him, and without any interpretation, his father Israel knew that that was symbols that was talking about him and his brothers and his mother. And so when Peter was saying, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall be turned into blood, and the stars shall fall from heaven, he was saying to them, it's just about lights out to natural apostate, rebellious Israel who have not received their king over them. Uh, and so he was saying, that's what's about to be shaken. You know, there's a lot of stuff, and I, once again, I'm really not, I really do not uh, uh, attack personalities. I respect people and their views, and they can present their side of it, and whatever you decide with it is up to you. But there's a lot of hype right now about blood moons and some of that kind of stuff, and they, you know, we're kind of talking about four blood moons within a year is usually the sign of something uh, catastrophic, and, and uh, you know, they, 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 they kind of make it sound like it's very unusual for blood moons to occur during feast months. But that's really not unusual at all, first of all, because blood moons, uh, I mean, uh, our moons occur uh, during those feasts all the time because they were set up on new moons and Sabbaths. So that was, it was set up on a lunar calendar. But uh, when I looked at some of the stuff, even that, because uh, we get a lot of people asking us, what do you think about the blood moons? I, I even looked back and started to look at some of the stuff historically that people said happened during blood moons. And interestingly enough, 
enough, they omitted a lot of years when there were four blood moons in the same calendar year and nothing, absolutely nothing happened. But they take the f about four times in uh, history where there seemed to be something significant. But as I looked at some of it, I think the first time was whenever, I believe it was in, um, I believe it was Spain uh, that uh, they, they gave the Jews seven days to get out of their country. And uh, so the emphasis was always upon Israel, but it was in that same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered the new, moon, the new world during that particular season. And I understand that Columbus was motivated by the scripture that said that God sits on the circle of the earth and as a result of much of what occurred in the Reformation, they had a, uh, a post-millennial view of the, and that, that the kingdom of God was being established in the earth and they had really an optimistic view of eschatology and he discovers a new world. The next time that a blood moon occurs was in 1948 when Israel became a nation. And, uh, and so that, again, was another good thing. It, uh, uh, the next time that a blood moon occurred, it was in, uh, during the Six-Day War in, in, in the 1960s, and, and Israel was recognized as a nation. That's three times in history that there was four blood moons in a year, and every time that that occurred, something positive happened. So my thing is, why would you, uh, why would you how could you carry over uh, from the other four blood moons something positive happening to something horrible happening. I don't know how they make the connection with that. So what really a lot of the blood moons are hung on and the theories about blood moons are really on, hung on Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and these scriptures dealing with the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall be turned into blood are hung upon scriptures that are not in your future at all. And the apostles themselves clearly said this is that. It was the fulfillment of what those prophecies spoke of then. That's not my opinion. That's what the apostle Peter said. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days saith God, I'm going to pour out my spirit. Now, you know, we just got some letters recently for people who thought we were talking about replacement theology. Now, let me say to you, first of all, I'm going to teach a lot more about Israel as we get into this, but I do not believe in replacement theology. I believe in placement theology. And I believe that God always, that, uh, in, in, that Abraham was not uh, simply our racial father, but he was our faith father. And when you follow the thought through that Ab God called Abraham and he called his children, uh, the children of faith are the seed of Abraham. Uh, he, he didn't replace anybody, whether it's a believing Jew or a believing Gentile, we are still the seed of Abraham because it was always by faith. It was not seeds as of many, but one seed and thy seed, which was Christ. That's to whom the promise was made. And when you see the promise, the great famous promise in the book of Genesis that says, I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. He's not talking about natural, just natural historic uh, Israel. He's talking about the seed of Abraham and the true seed of Abraham are the children of faith and the children of promise. As a matter of fact, Jesus would look straight into the eyes of these Jewish leaders and he would say to them, Abraham is not your father. If Abraham was your father, you would believe the the things that I say to you. But because you don't believe, you show that you're the children of the devil and that you are not Abraham's seed. And so, I mean, there are so many places in the scripture that Jesus points right to them as unbelievers and says to them, uh, you know, you are, uh, you're of your father, the devil. You're not, you are not Abraham's seed. So God never replaced anybody, but he placed us all in the seed of Abraham through faith. And so we were always a part of the covenant of promise based on faith. 
faith and not based on a natural outward circumcision or a natural birth. Because if you read it in the Amplified Bible, even in the book of Galatians, uh, the fourth chapter, it tells us, let me, let me just grab this for you uh, while, I'm, while I'm here working on this. But in the book of Galatians, the fourth chapter, I believe it's in the Amplified Bible. Uh, let me get it, grab it here real quick. It says, And of course, the book of Galatians is always is leading up to trying to tell you that, that not seeds as of many, but uh, thy seed, which is Christ, one seed, not seeds as of many, but one seed and your seed, which is Christ. But verse 22 of Galatians 4 says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondmaid and one by the free woman. But whereas the child of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, and had an ordinary birth, the son of the free woman was born in fulfillment of the promise. Now this is an allegory. It's a story. It's a type of shadow. These two women, Hagar and Sarah, represent two covenants. One covenant originated from Mount Sinai where the law was given and bears children destined for slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar is and stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia. And she corresponds to and belongs in the same category with the present Jerusalem. Now look at that. He said Hagar is in contrast and is in the same category with the present Jerusalem, for she is in bondage together with her children. So he's trying to make you a direct connection and show you that Abraham has two sons. And he has two sons by two different women. Say it another way. He has two sons under two different covenants. And what he goes on to show you is that this Hagar is Mount Sinai. It is the, where the law was given. And this Sinai bears children destined for slavery. And this Sinai, these people under the old covenant, the old covenant agreement are Hagar. And they uh, are in Arabia and correspond to in the same category as Jerusalem. So he connects natural Jerusalem and natural Israel and the natural birth and the natural seed of Abraham to Mount Sinai, and he connects them to Hagar, the bondwoman. And then he goes on to say, but Jerusalem above, the messianic kingdom of Christ is free, and she is our mother. For it is written in the scripture, rejoice, O barren woman who has not given birth to children. Break forth into joyful shout, you who are not feeling birth pains. For the desolate woman has many more children than she who has a husband. But we, brethren, are children but we, brethren, are children, not by physical descent, as was Ishmael, but like Isaac, we were born in virtue of the promise. Yet just as at that time, the child of the ordinary birth, born according to the flesh, despised and persecuted him who was born remarkably, according to the promise and the working of the Holy Spirit, so it is now. In other words, the child of the ordinary birth the natural birth, once again, was Ishmael, but the children of the supernatural birth are Isaac, those who are born remarkably and by the Holy Spirit. This doesn't replace anybody. It places us. It always was the promise to the seed. And the seed was not Isaac. The seed was Christ. So I'm not replacing anybody. I'm trying to tell you the true Israel of God was always the believer, the one who had faith in God, just like Abraham did, because Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, but God called him the father of faith. And he goes on to say, but what does the scripture say? Cast out and send away the slave woman and her son, for never shall the son of the slave woman be heir and share in the inheritance with the son of the free woman. He says the, the natural seed, uh, the, that's not my opinion. This is what the Bible says. 
It says, The cast out and sent away the slave woman and her son, for never shall the son of the slave woman be heir and share in the inheritance with the son of the free woman. You do not get the covenants of promise by natural birth. You get it by supernatural birth. I'm trying to tell you that just because you were born Jewish or any other ethnic background does not mean that you are in covenant with God or have an access to the kingdom of God. You have to come by supernatural birth, whether you're Jew or a Gentile. And even when Romans 10, when it comes in and talks about all Israel will be saved, he's not singling out and saying everybody that's ever been Jewish is going to make it in. What He, he takes nine chapters to lead up to that by telling them in chapter 2 that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, whose circumcision has been flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, whose circumcision is at the heart. And he goes on to say, and in chapter 3, that we're the children of Abraham by faith, and it was God who believed. He believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness, and he believed God for seed. And all up through the book of Romans, it's dealing with moving from this old covenant to this new covenant. And it gets to chapter 10, and it says, all Israel will be saved. And it talks about one being grafted in. It talks about one being, uh, uh, you know, cut out. But the, the emphasis once again, is not on the branches. Whether they're grafted or whether they're natural branches, the emphasis is on the root. And the root is Jesus Christ. There is a, there is a you know, I, I could say, the, I, I, I'm not trying to be offensive this morning, but uh, the, the reality of it is even Jesus himself was not purely Jewish. You look at me and say, well, what? I never thought about this before, Brother House. No, his mother was Jewish, but his father was not. His father was the same father that you and I have. His father was God. He was born of a supernatural birth. That's the seed to whom the promise was given. But he goes on to say that they'll never be the heir. The son of the slave woman will never be heir and share in the inheritance of the son of the free woman. So brethren, we who are born again. So let me read that again. This is amplified verse 31. So we, brethren, who are born again, are not children of the slave woman, the natural, but of the free of the supernatural. I, I don't know how much plainer you can get than that, is to see that, uh, you know, the inheritance, if you think there's another gospel, if you think there's another alternative, you say, well, uh, Brother House, you sound anti-Semitic. Let me first of all say, I'm not anti-anything. I, 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 believe, I believe God loves Jews, but I believe God also, also loves Americans. And I believe God loves Gentiles. And I believe God loves Russians. And I believe God loves Chinese. And I believe when we stop making an ethnic fight out of this, that one of the reasons Jesus came was to tear down the middle wall partition between Jew and Gentile and make out of twain one nation for himself, out of one new man, to make out of twain one new man. So it's not about race, it's about grace. It's not, it's, it's not about performance. It's about children of faith. And so, you know, I am the, because I am Abraham's seed, I'm an heir to the promise. If you want to give your inheritance away, that's totally your prerogative. I think so many times, and I really didn't mean to get on the Israel issue this soon because we're going to talk about that later when we deal with the sealing of the saints in chapter 7 where he talks about, I saw out of the tribe of Judah 12,000 sealed. And he starts listing them. It is interesting to me that when he gets to the seventh chapter of uh, the book of Revelation and he starts to list the order of the tribes and their sealing is that he starts with the tribe of Judah. Now that breaks every biblical pattern if you're looking at a natural seed because the natural seed, the firstborn of Israel would have been Reuben and it would have listed it as such. 
But because it lists Judah as the firstborn, he's trying to show you that this is a spiritual Israel that was always made up of the one who came out of the tribe of Judah, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that those that are in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation are made up, in my opinion, of both Jew and Gentile, one holy nation who come into the covenants of promise through faith because the new covenant does not exclude Jews, but it does not exclude Gentiles either. God just drew a bigger circle and says, I'm just going to include both Jew and Gentile, and I'm going to tell you that there is only one way that you can come into the covenants of promise, and that's through, not through natural birth. It is through a supernatural birth. It is, in, it is through that supernatural birth that we have this inheritance. And so uh, when I take a look at that, I, I, I think to myself, man, and the way we've preached it in times past is that God really, really loves Israel. But she rejected him. That was his first love. And so what he did was he, he took the Gentiles so that, you know, uh, we're his second choice. And the way we preach it basically is about the time, uh, you know, Israel decides she's back in love with him, God's going to dump us and go back to her. I, I, I don't know. You, you can do with that whatever you want to. The truth of it is, is I believe I was his first choice. I believe the children of faith were always the first choice. And I think if you would go to the scriptures and you would read that in the context, you would see that Abraham's seed is not based on a natural genealogy. I don't know how much clearer I could have made it in, in these steps except to show you that it came through a supernatural birth. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. But at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you can kind of see that that is one of those things where uh, he's not dealing with so much a natural seed as he was a supernatural seed. Now, let me come back again and deal with just a couple of more of these last day scriptures, and I'm going to try to jump into them again next uh, on the next segment. But uh, the third apostle, if, if you only have, the, there's, there's the apostle Paul, he said, God who hath in these last days spoke to us by his son. Paul calls his day the last days. The apostle Peter stands up, he said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. The other apostle that would say this is John the apostle, who says in one of his epistles, he says, little children, we know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene. Now let me tell you that that wasn't talking about 2,000 years in our future. John was dealing with an Antichrist that was already on the scene. And I believe some of that had to do with the Gnostics that didn't even believe that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, but I believe it's any spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. And I believe it was God dealing with a whole group of people who were pro-God but anti-Christ. And I might mention something else to you that may be shocking to you, but the word Antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. We compare apples for apples and not try to cross these over. And I've done it myself in times past, but I've seen clearer than I've ever seen before that this beast of Revelation is totally different than this Antichrist because Antichrist is only ever mentioned just one or two times in the scripture, but not in the book of Revelation. This ought to be helping somebody. I, I'm not really worried about some coming Antichrist. Uh, Jesus and, and all of them were dealing with something that was happening and occurring in their day when John said, little children, we know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene. That's three apostolic witnesses. And then Jesus would come on the scene in Matthew 24, and the question he would ask them when he saw, saw all the beautiful buildings of the temple, and they say, Jesus begins to prophesy. He said, not one stone 
will be left upon another here, which shall not be thorn down. Now, it is evident that the context here is he's dealing with the natural temple being destroyed in 70 AD. And he said, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? If you read that in any translation other than King James, it will say end of the age. I submit to you that the end of the world that he was talking about was not the end of a global situation, but it was the end of the age of the law of Moses. And as long as the first temple was standing, the law was still in effect. So God dismantled that system and tore, literally tore it apart so that they could not go back to the law, even if they wanted to. And so to me, when I start seeing that the last days may not be in my future, they may be in my past, I get really excited. And then I think about in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, where it says, once in the end of the world, that's my favorite end of the world scripture, hath, past tense, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And unto them that look for him will he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now that again is a terminology that is dealing with once in the end of the not global situation world, but the Greek word there again is eon or age. Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he's already appeared and the end of that age became the ultimate sacrifice for sin and put it away by the sacrifice of himself. And unto the limb that look for him he'll appear the second time. That's not talking about him coming in the clouds. That was about him going into the most holy place and offering his blood and then coming back out and presenting himself as high priest, having abolished and made an end of sin. We are, com we are just about ready to run out of time. But the, the Jews of that day would have known that Jesus was talking when he said, will he appear the second time without sin under salvation, would have known that he was talking about that period of time when he would go in, when the high priest would go in behind the veil and offer the blood. They they would wait with bated breath outside that temple to see if he would live to come back out. Because if he came back out and appeared to them the second time, then they would know that God had put away the sin of the nation for another full year on the Day of Atonement. I got to tell you, Jesus stepped into the heavens and he appeared to put his blood on the, on the doorpost, but he came back out. If he did not, then our sin has not been put away by the sacrifice of himself. And I want to tell you that the end of the world is not the end of a global situation. It is the end of an age. It was the end of the age of the law. Think about the next time you're reading those scriptures about end of, end of the world and stuff, and it'll help you set that in context. We're just about to run out of time, but if you take just a moment to write to us, if you believe in what we're doing, please get behind us. It takes your support to do this on national and international television. Uh, your seed makes a difference. Don't ever sit there and think it's too small or this is too little. Every little bit helps, and it is the small offerings that build up that help us to take care of this. So you could call the number on the screen, and uh, we could take credit cards. Thank you for joining us. God bless you till we meet again. For anyone struggling to understand John's writings in Revelation, this book provides true, biblically-based answers. Through detailed insights into the letters John wrote to the seven churches of his day, you will learn how to avoid the mistakes of the early church to overcome today's trials and tribulations. This book will provoke you to thought and dialogue, bringing greater clarity and revelation of Jesus Christ.